Voices are exotic dancers enter one by one Make love to all of your orifices in your seduction Hello and welcome to Ear Seduction. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. And today we're going to take some time to discuss the El Paso Shooters Manifesto. Uh, I know that this is sort of a hot topic and I know that there are many people who believe that we shouldn't talk about it or that it shouldn't be published. I also uh, understand that there are quite a few people that want to discuss it, discuss the points of view in the manifesto. And I actually subscribe to the latter of those two ideas. I think it's a good idea to wrestle with the ideology of the shooter. Uh, I'm not going to say his name. I do understand the logic behind when people say they don't want to name the shooter because the shooter wants to become famous. The shooter does indicate in the manifesto that he does want to become famous or that he thinks he will become famous. He does anticipate news coverage. He does anticipate other shooters following his in his footsteps. And he cites other shooters in his manifesto as providing information and inspiration. So we won't be saying his name, but I do want to talk about his claims. Now, as an exercise in critical thought, I think it's good to go through these claims, the El Paso shooter's claims, and determine, is he correct? Is he incorrect? Does he employ any logical fallacies? Does he have any false conclusions? Does he have any non sequiturs, for instance? And I guess, not surprisingly, he does have quite a few. So, this is going to be the first part in a two-part episode. In this part of the episode, I'm just going to cover what it is that the manifesto says. And I'm not going to read it word for word. Uh, I it was It's quite jarbled. Um, it's self-contradictory in places and it jumps around a bit. It doesn't, it doesn't have... Um, it's not very well reasoned. But I am going to cover the main points that he makes. I'm going to do very brief critiques of these points. But I'm going to save the majority of the analysis of what he's claiming for the second podcast. Now, in the second podcast, I'm going to talk more about is there any truth behind his claims? I was actually very surprised in reading this manifesto how much he cites issues that I think a lot of people are concerned about. I wasn't anticipating that uh, a right-wing white nationalist um, mass shooter would be worried about topics like the environment, for instance, or uh, automation, or or that he would also fault the Republicans, for instance, for many of their pro-corporate policy. So it's interesting to me that in some ways, there's common ground between what I would just consider your average everyday American and the El Paso shooter. And then, of course, in many ways, in a few very specific ways, there are huge differences. Now, one thing you'll notice is how just completely seduced by horrible ideas and false ideologies the shooter is caught up in. He's he's just completely deranged on a couple of very specific ideas. And I think those will become obvious as we go through the material. But let's do that. Let's get into exactly what this shooter is claiming. 
So I took down notes based on the manifesto, and he has a couple of very specific reasons why he wanted to commit this atrocity. So the first and foremost on his list is what he's calling the Hispanic invasion of Texas. He cites that, or he states, excuse me, that he didn't initially blame Hispanics for all of the problems in the United States or the problems that he's most worried about in the United States. But after reading uh, The Great Replacement, uh, which is is a conspiracy theory popularized by Renaud Camus, I believe that's French, who wrote a book called The Great Replacement, and it was published in 2011. Uh, This theory postulates that elites within the many European governments are implementing a, quote, white genocide, unquote, through, quote, genocide by substitution, unquote. Essentially, the European Union, along with individual governments, specifically the French government, are planning to replace the white European population with non-white, non-European people peoples through immigration, demographic growth, and lowered European birth rates. This is done through intentional policies enacted by the European governments. So this was a white nationalist um, conspiracy theory that our shooter bought into. And you can sort of hear echoes of these theories in actual, first off, in actual scholarly articles and books. Uh, Not that there is some sort of conspiracy by the government to replace white people with non white people or European people with non-European people, but that there is a migration going on currently in Europe, that there is an immigration or a massive migration going on currently, that there is currently a massive migration going on in Europe, and that the European people are having certain specific issues with related to the migrants. Um, Now, one can postulate all kinds of reasons for these issues or remedies to these issues. Issues, but there is a large migration of people into Europe, and in some places that is causing either social unrest or social concern or financial concern. So the problem with Renaud Camus, Camus, excuse me, Renaud Camus and his conspiracy theory isn't necessarily that there isn't a migration happening in Europe right now. It's that apparently he thinks that it's a European that the European Union is behind it specifically to replace place the white population or the or the European population with a non-white, non-European population. Um, so the shooter believes that traditionally white European descendants that live in Texas are under attack by immigrants who are presumably being powered by liberal and conservative conservative <laughs> by liberal and conservative elitist policies. Um, these policies will bring about what he's calling a white genocide. That's that's his words. Those are his words. Through through a quote substitution unquote that will forever change the great state of Texas from a predominantly Republican state to a Democratic one. So he's very concerned that the Democrats will take over in Texas and that this will swing the entirety of U.S. politics towards the liberal side or the Democratic side. He he speaks at this in length, but there isn't a lot of substance to what he's saying, and so I've just sort of truncated it to the main points that he makes. Um, he. He doesn't go on to cite many of these claims. He doesn't try to prop them up. He simply just makes more claims. So, like I said, there's not a lot of substance in what he's saying. He does have... He, he, he does make certain claims, but he backs them up with other claims instead of actual evidence for these claims. So, for instance, he thinks that it's a bad thing that there are Hispanic people living in Texas or moving into Texas. Why it's a bad thing, he makes more claims, but he doesn't support 
support it with any evidence. So I'm not going to go through every claim that he makes. I'm just going to cover the what I thought were the most important or the ones that were thematic. So he believes that uh, Hispanic immigrants or a Hispanic migration into Texas is a problem. He also believes a whole bunch of other things that are a problem with this, but nothing to support any of these problems or any of his beliefs, I should say. The next thing that he goes on to cite is that there has been a corporate takeover of our government. Uh, he says that both the Democrats and the Republicans are pro-corporation and pro-corporation is equivalent to pro-immigration. He says the Dems are worse than the Republicans because they're nearly 100% pro-immigration while the Republicans still are still divided over this issue. So he believes that the Republican Party and that Republicans and uh, Republican policies in general are our best chance at thwarting the uh, takeover or invasion, as he calls it, of Hispanics in the state of Texas. Another major concern of his was automation. So he states that as much as 50% of US jobs will be replaced by automation in the next 10 to 20 years. He believes that the answer to this issue will be a universal basic income. He goes on to claim that by lowering the number of people in the United States whose jobs are automated away, and by lowering the number of what he calls dependents on government programs, we will increase the probability of successfully implementing the universal basic income or UBI. He then oddly states that automation will be a good thing because it will eliminate the need for new migrants to fill unskilled jobs. He sees the migrant population as competing with automation and slowing its progress in replacing workers with automation and robotic systems, or I should say with automatic and robotic systems. Automation will replace low-skilled jobs that Americans don't want anyway. So he, in citing automation as part of his concerns, I actually recognize some truth to that. I do see automation as a potential concern, although I don't think that it is what he thinks it is. Um, but it does seem to be something that we as Americans and just people in general might need to worry about. Why he believes that the migrant population is competing with automation or the advancement of automation in our economy, I don't know. He does seem to think that this, the jobs that are going to be replaced are going to be low-skilled jobs that he claims migrants traditionally occupy. So, according to him, the more automation, the better, because we will have automated systems or potentially, I guess, robots to do these low-skilled jobs, and we won't need migrants to do the work. Or there won't maybe there won't be work for the migrants because all the jobs will be taken up through automation. That's his, as best as I can gather, that's his reasoning. So, I mean, one can easily see that he goes from something that could probably be a problem, automation, but takes just a total left turn into crazy town in stating that we need to lower the number of dependents on government programs, and this will increase the probability of successfully implementing a UBI, which he sees as the answer to our automation problem. Um, I'm not sure that we have an automation problem, just to be clear, but it does seem that automation is going to replace humans in many jobs in the future, and we need to... That may or may not be a problem. I think I think the, the evidence isn't in yet. We, we are undecided. He also has a contradiction in the writing itself. So, at first, he claims that automation is an issue, a problem that he's concerned about. In fact, later on, he goes on to say that his job is going to... His dream job is going to be automated away. We'll, we'll touch on that. But he also claims contradictory... Uh, as a contradiction to that, that automation is a good thing. And it's good because it will 
will take the jobs that the migrants currently fill. So I guess there'll be less need for migrants. So moving on, um, he believes that there will be an increased competition for skilled jobs. He states that second and third generation immigrants, in an effort to fully live the American dream, educate themselves, placing them in direct competition with U.S. citizens for higher paying skilled jobs. This exacerbates the already troublesome problem of an overqualified and underutilized workforce. In the past, high school, a high school education was all that was needed to be successful in the United States. But now people are having to obtain overpriced and undervalued college degrees to compete in the job market. This has burdened the American population with debt. So here, he <laughs> he almost runs the risk of sounding like a Bernie supporter in his concern for the overpriced, overpriced degrees and, and the cost that education has on the population and the debt that we bear when we go to college and then must pay off. But somehow he ties in migrants as, co- as, as making this problem worse because they also in second and third generations, according to him, go to college and then compete for our higher paying jobs. Um, as I stated before, I'm not going to fact check him in this particular podcast. That's going to be the next podcast where we actually dig deeper and find out how many of his claims are actually true. Is it true that second and third generation immigrants or the sons and daughters of immigrants and their sons and daughters go to school at a higher rate and get degrees that in turn compete with our own? I guess at this point, we're all Americans since they're second and third generation. So I don't see his... I, I, I don't understand the distinction he's making. But anyway, we're going to fact check him in the second one and really dig into his logic and find out if he has any correct statements in here. But I am going to go out on a limb and I don't feel da- I don't feel like I, I, I don't feel like I'm in danger of doing this at all in saying that his conclusions are almost unanimously false or almost ut- entirely false. So he then goes on to assert that we are assaulting the environment. He says a corporate led and consumer driven practice or sorry. He states that corporate-led and consumer-driven practices are destroying our country. Americans are unwilling to change their lifestyles to stop this destruction, and the government is controlled by the corporations to such a degree that they are unable, or excuse me, to such a degree that they are unwilling to make any meaningful changes to environmental policy. So he recognizes that the environment is in danger, that we're in danger of climate change, that climate change poses a real problem. This also surprised me. I did not think, and maybe naively so, or admittedly naively so, that a mass shooter like this, who is clearly preoccupied with immigration as basically the source of all of our problems, or at least one one of the problems that we need to address more readily than in many others, I didn't think that he would be worried about the environment. In fact, I would have assumed that he probably would have been a climate change denier, but he's not. I can't help but empathize with him on this point. And that troubles me. I don't want to empathize with him. But I think what he said and what I what I h- outlined in this initial, which was a sort of a truncated version of what he was saying, is that corporations are dragging us down further into the murky water of climate denial. Not only are they pushing the denial agenda, but they're also taking the will away from our politicians to make any meaningful changes. And I do think that largely, and I don't think it's just a 
Americans, I think it's all people, are unwilling to change their lifestyles to stop this destruction that we will see in the future. The water will rise. It will get warmer. Desertification will occur. Our food sources are going to be at risk. And weather patterns are going to change. And we don't seem to, as a people, have the will to make any real changes. I don't know anybody that's making any real personal changes other than maybe some light bulbs. I know I'm trying to make some changes, but I am also constrained by financial, by my finances. It's it's not cheap, for instance, to get geothermal, but that is the only way to go completely solar, according to my calculations. So this is a tough one. Now, here's, here's the punchline here, and this is where he goes completely wrong. Here's what he says, essentially. He claims that we need to decrease the number of people using up all the resources. And this is where I quote him. I say, quote, if we can get rid of enough people, then our way of life can become more sustainable, unquote. This is obviously completely misguided and misinformed and not a humanist position. In the second podcast, we'll get into that, how he overtly trespasses on the tenets of humanism in his conclusions. But here is just such a stark example of how if you have an ideology that has, let's say, two main pillars for its foundation, one of them being correct that we're destroying the planet through human activity, or at the very least, we're causing climate change through human activity. That's a correct pillar. And your second pillar is that the only way to resolve this is through lowering the population. And for him, specifically the Hispanic population in the United States, those two pillars of his ideology, while one being correct, the first one, and the second being completely demonstrably incorrect, i.e. there's no reason to, as he, as I quote him, he says, get rid of enough people to be able to sustain our way of life. There's no reason to think, first of all, that that's a valid answer, that that would even work. And by the way, it completely disregards what humanists generally hold to be our unalienable right to life. So if you have an ideology and you're uncertain about one of its tenets or one of its foundational pillars, it's probably a good idea to throw that ideology out and supplant it with something that is sound and reasonable and valid. Anyway, I promised I wouldn't do that much analysis. So finally, on to his personal reasons. Now, this is where he kind of gave us more insight into who he is as a person and less just sort of what he thought are hard facts about the reality of, you know, corporate America or the United States population changing or whatever, right? So as I, as I hinted to or stated earlier that uh, he believes that his dream job will be automated away and that Texas will become a Hispanic-run coup that will hasten the destruction of the country, supposedly because it will turn Democratic. It will then vote Democratic and he believes that the Democrats are... Or that Democrat Democratic policy is the fastest way towards destruction of the country, as he puts it. He then says that he believes that the Founding Fathers gave us the right to use firearms to save our country from this coup. So he, he uses the Constitution as a reason and that it... And he states that it gives him the right to kill people. So I don't know how you could read that from the Constitution, but he seems to think that's what it says. He also believes that his actions are faultless because he is doing this to save our country from the Hispanic invaders. So he sees it as self-preservation or as a valid response to a credible threat. He considered Walmart as an immigrant target. I'm not exactly sure how he ascertained that Walmart would be a quote, immigrant, unquote, target and depleted the, and excuse me, and depleting the immigrant population as the highest value of his time. 
So he specifically wanted to shoot immigrants because he wanted to lower the immigrant population because he believes that that will be the most effective way to address the issues that he brought up earlier. Now, the only issue that he brought up earlier where he specifically talks about overpopulation is the climate change issue. But apparently, he believes that immigrant populations, because of all the secondary and tertiary issues that he claims they cause in our economy and in our politics, that they are the, they were really, that was the reason that they were the best targets for him. Um, He states that he is against race mixing because it, quote, destroys genetic diversity and creates identity problems, unquote. He doesn't go on to say any, to provide any evidence for this. Um, He doesn't describe this in any more detail. He just, he says that and then that's it in regards to, he doesn't describe what genetic diversity means, how what he calls race mixing destroys genetic diversity, and he doesn't go on at all to say what an identity problem is or what these problems are. He also called race mixing, quote, unnecessary, unquote, and, quote, selfish, unquote. He states that second and third generation Hispanics form interracial unions at higher rates than average, and that this is another reason to send them back home. He goes on to claim that cultural and and racial diversity are temporary, and that diversity diminishes as stronger cultures overtake weaker ones, or a genocide will occur. So, what he's saying there is that racial diversity is temporary because at some point there will be a genocide and that will, I guess, decrease racial diversity. He wasn't specific on that. Then, astonishingly, after all of this, after talking about why he's going to kill Hispanics specifically and after clearly identifying him, identifying himself as a racist um, and propping up his racism with his so-called reasons, his economic reasons, his climate reasons, his political reasons, none of which, by the way, are asserted with any supporting evidence. He says, and I quote, the idea of deporting or murdering all non-white Americans is horrific, unquote. As many of them have been here as long as the whites and do not, <clears throat> excuse me, and have done much to build our country. So, even within this manifesto, which you would imagine would clearly detail out exactly what he was thinking and why, he is in conflict. He also, he, he, he goes to great lengths to describe what he's calling a Hispanic invasion and why that's a threat. And then he, he states, very, very human here, what he says, the idea of deporting or murdering all non-white Americans is horrific. It is horrific. It's horrific to even consider such a thing. And he recognizes that. It, 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 almost, it almost cries out in this manifesto as, as the actual answer, the actual reason, right? This is horrific. It shouldn't happen. You shouldn't do it. I just wish he had just thought about that a little longer and made a different choice. Um... Sorry, got a little emotional there, but one can't help but wonder what he might have done if he had just elaborated on that idea for a little bit longer in his in his uh, manifesto. If he had just sat and wrote more about how horrific it was going to be, what he was about to do. He goes on after that to say um, that he has a solution for the issues that he's outlined. Uh, And he believes that we should divide America into confederacy territories with one territory for each race. He claims that this solution would eliminate race 
mixing, that's his term, race mixing, and improves social unity by granting each race with self-determination within their territories. A little jarbled, that, that sentence there, but that's what he believes. What self-determination means, I'm not sure. I guess that means that they could enact policies that would benefit themselves as opposed to benefiting other races. Um, I think he, he's making it very clear here in his solution that he does not see us as human beings. He sees us as races, and races are, in his eyes, different than each other. So, for instance, you wouldn't enact a policy through government that would benefit humanity or homo sapiens or humankind. You would enact a policy that would benefit the whites or the blacks or the Hispanics or the Chinese. I don't know if he would consider that a race. I When I think of what most people call Asians, I prefer to distinguish between Chinese, Japanese, Indian, so on, because I don't think Asian is a useful term, really. Anyway, so, I mean, this is, uh, in the second in the second podcast, I'm, where we talk about his, his reason and his logic and how many mistakes he makes in this manifesto and why his conclusions are bad conclusions and false conclusions, I'm going to talk about this idea of what it would be like if we separated and segregated out the country by race. What happens in other countries when they segregate, for instance, their children by some arbitrary distinction? We wouldn't really need to think about it very long. We could look to Ireland and see that the Irish people decided at some point to separate out the Protestants from the Catholics. And how well did that work out for them? What was the outcome? I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek there, but I think what we have learned time and time again is that segregating leads to warring. It creates distinct lines between the in-group and the out-group, and that leads to warring. It seems to me that the best way to avoid problems between cultures and people is to integrate and to cooperate. And I think we have evidence to show that, and we'll get into that in the second podcast. But this, this is clearly a terrible idea idea, and the evidence does not support it. So, his final statements in the manifesto of any real substance are to exonerate President Trump as the source of his ideology. He claims that he has held this ideology well before Trump was in office, um, and he predicts that the media will connect this manifesto with Trump's rhetoric and claims that they will spin this because they are, quote, fake news, unquote. Well, in in that, he was correct. I think it's easy to draw the connection here between Trump's rhetoric and the rhetoric that this person published in his manifesto. I think they have obvious similarities, and I think the rhetoric is positioned and directed towards a very specific group of people. Obviously, it's the Hispanics. We don't know why there's such a a movement right now in the United States that's anti-Hispanic. We know why when we read manifestos like this, we can see that the motivation is for, uh, in the case of this manifesto, it's for jobs, so it's for employment, it's for what they're saying is the betterment of the country to make us economically more viable. They believe that Hispanics and the Hispanic population makes us in some way economically less strong or weakens us economically. They're saying that they're concerned that it will change the politics of our country, in this case towards the Democratic side or the, a shift to the left. And he's concerned about the environment. Now, more than anything though, he seems to be concerned that the 
white of European descent population in the United States is going to be replaced with a non-white, non-European descent, with a population of non-white people of non-European descent. And and why this is a problem and why this is a problem remains a mystery. The shooter doesn't provide any analysis or any further reasons. I guess as readers, we are supposed to take on board into our minds without any critical thought to the matter that this just is a problem. And I fail to see the connection. I don't see this as a problem. And I don't know that you would see it that way either. I don't know. This is the kind of podcast where I want you guys, the listeners, to engage with us if you can, if you will. Now, me personally, I see this as not a war on race or economics or politics, but a war of ideology and ideas. I'll give you an example. So, the degree to which any person, whether they're an immigrant or whether like a, a, a new immigrant, part of the current migration, or whether they're, it doesn't matter what, what kind of person they are, but any person in the United States, the degree to which they are for or against our right to free speech, or for or against the separation of church and state, or for or against our unalienable rights, like our right to life, our right to pursue happiness, and so on. To me, that's the concern I have with the population of the United States. Not what race it is, or what gender, or what their home, quote-unquote, home country was, whether they were European of European descent, or whether were they whether they were of uh, Hispanic descent. I'm not really sure that the shooter realizes that many, if not all, of the people of what he's calling Hispanic descent are also of European descent. Their European forefathers came over from Europe, Spain, Portugal, those are in Europe, and colonized and intermingled and intermixed. And so, if he's trying to separate the races, for what reason we couldn't say, but if he's trying to do that, he's largely too late. It's very troubling because the Hispanic population that lives in Central and South America are just as intermingled with the natives and each other and the French and the Spanish before they came over here and the English and so on and the German as we are. I don't know how many of you, you know, have done the 23andMe or my family tree or whatever it's called dot com where you find out, you know, what part of Scotland you're from or whatever, or you find out what percentage of uh, you are of Irish or of German or of Spanish or of Native American or of whatever, or French. But we're all intermingled with each other. There is no pure race. And what this shooter fails to recognize is that race is largely just something we call one another based on superficial appearances. Some would say that there's really no such thing as race. I don't know if I'd go that far, but I would say that race is superficial. It's like eye color, or it's like hair type, whether it's brown or maybe hair color, or whether it's curly or whether it's straight, or whether it's coarse or silky. I mean, these are superficial things that differentiate us from one another. But we are all part, we all are a part of the same humanity. We are are in fact human beings and not much different than one another when we really think about it. And it seems to me that he's right on the cusp of understanding this. He's so close. After all, his contradictions in this manifesto are the kinds of contradictions you hear when when you're wrestling in your mind with an idea and all of a sudden something true comes through and you say something in your head like, 
the idea of deporting or, or murdering all non-white Americans is horrific. That was actually true. It was all the other nonsense that he said before that that contradicts this idea, this statement that he made. That was untrue. <laughs> now, let's agree that we'll save further analysis for part two of this of this podcast. And I think I've given you guys what are not just the just <laughs> of this manifesto, but really sort of the foundational points and arguments that he's trying to make. There's a section of the manifesto where he talks about what kinds of guns he's going to use and how he thinks this will be an experiment in determining which bullets are most effective and so on. And it's, it's quite unnerving and it's quite sad. And I skip over it because it doesn't matter. But for the most part, this is what our shooter thought. And I say our shooter because he is one of us. He's a human being and he's an American human being. And in some way, we have to take responsibility for him. And that's why I wanted to talk about his manifesto and his thoughts and his ideas. Because as I stated before, I don't think we have a problem of race or gender or superficial surface issues in this country. I think we have a problem problem of ideas. And these are his ideas. And I see a lot of problems with them. For one, many of his reasons are demonstrably false, while some of them are based in things that are true, like climate change. And for two, his reasoning skills and abilities are terribly flawed. His conclusions are completely immoral, and as he stated, horrific. So I guess I'll let you sit with that, and hopefully you're able to wrestle with these ideas and look into his claims and determine where he went wrong. I challenge you to look up some of the things that he States. For instance, do Hispanics reproduce at a higher rate than the European descendants? <laughs> We're all European descendants, so I don't know what he's talking about, but is there any reason, for instance, to think that our government has implemented policy to replace white America with a non-white, non-European migrant community? Clearly, I think that's a conspiracy theory, but there are reasons to look into these ideas and find out what actually under, what's the underpinning information? Because one thing that I've noticed about most of the people that we would consider crazy, and that's another reason why I wanted to do this podcast. I don't think that our shooter was the kind of crazy that we want him to be. I think he he is a kind of crazy, but he's not like serial killer. The voices in my head told me to do it crazy, or my dog told me to do it crazy. Not necessarily. He doesn't necessarily think he's an orange, for instance. He's not that kind of crazy. But he seems to be someone who was deeply troubled by where he saw the future, where he saw us headed. And for some reason, as a a good friend of mine pointed out, thought he alone could change the course of that future. And maybe that was his biggest flaw, that he failed to recognize the power of working together. So instead of cooperation, he chose annihilation. And I guess I'll leave you with that. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I hope that this podcast helped you understand who this person was, why they did what they did, and gave you some answers to any questions you might have about this atrocity and about why people seem to be doing these things more and more. Again, in our next podcast, we'll go over some of the ideas and his conclusions and show how they're incorrect. I'm going to give him as much credit as I can for anything that he gets correct. Um, But unfortunately for all of us, 
the survivors and most unfortunately for the victims he there was few and far between he got very little correct as far as i can tell from a detailed reading of his manifesto so thank you again for listening all right so there we've detailed out what it is that the el paso shooter had to say in his manifesto again i didn't want to take too many positions although i did end up arguing with him a bit and it was really hard not to recognize the humanity in some of the things that he said i think as i get older and as i learn more about the world and the people in it. Uh, It's not really that cut and dry that this is a good person or this is a bad person. I know some people that have a lot in common with the El Paso shooter. I know some people that believe in wacky, crazy conspiracy theories and they, you know, collect guns and dried goods in their basements and they're sort of waiting for the apocalypse or perhaps they're considering doing something to bring on the apocalypse. I don't know for sure. What I do know is that some of these people have children and wives and families and they seem to care very much for those folks. They care very much for their in-group. It's just too bad that they are under the impression that there is an out-group and that that out-group is an immediate threat to their in-group. Now, tribalism is nothing new, and and we see it everywhere around us. I was raised, for instance, by homophobic, racist, sexist, white Protestant, and some Catholics. I actually had to go through a process purposefully to engage with my racism, my homophobia, my sexism, and try to become a better person, try to come out the other side with a better understanding of why I felt that way, why I was indoctrinated into that mode of thinking, and how to get myself out of it. Now, very recently uh, in my life, one of my best friends in the whole world, a 20-year, 25-year friendship was completely derailed by homophobic, racist, tribalist thinking. Sprinkle in some Alex Jones conspiracy theory and some Jewish space lasers and QAnon, and essentially I lost a friend to the Trump cult. Now, that's a really hard thing to to go through. That's a really painful place to be in a 25-year friendship. And I tried everything I could think of to keep him from going down that road. I tried everything I could think of to salvage the friendship because what we don't understand, I think, a lot of the times is evil is in us. (laughs) It's something that can happen to us. We take a wrong turn down crazy street and and all of a sudden now we're thinking in an evil way. It's important that we engage with these people and try and bring them over to the correct side. And that would be the side that doesn't think that, in this case, Hispanic Americans are evil (laughs) and that they're going to ruin everything. Now, there's a moment in the podcast um, where I get a little bit emotional, uh, where the El Paso shooter talks about his humanity a little bit, where he he recognizes somehow that that what he's considering doing and what he eventually does is going to be an atrocity. It's going to be horrific. It's hard not to dwell on that for a moment and realize that this is a human being and he's probably a lot like you and I. And while we might never go down that road uh, that he went down, that we're responsible for him in a certain way, right? We're responsible for the people around us. We're responsible for what they hear and what they think. And if we infect them with something terrible. Like, for instance, my grandfather infected me with what he wanted to be a hate for all the people, all the foreigners, as he called them. Now, I didn't fall for it. I'd, it didn't make sense to me. But he would have liked me to think that way. His other grandchildren, many of them, not all of them, but his other grandchildren thought that way. How terrible that is. What if he, my grandfather now, had just stopped to think about how important it is for me, his grandson, to think correctly? I can't help but think that maybe this El Paso 
shooter, if somebody had just said something to him, if he had just had more support in critical thought, in understanding what race actually is. I mean, imagine if the El Paso shooter had embraced evolution and understood what genetic diversity is. As soon as you understand the this what the science actually tells us about race and genetic diversity, the El Paso shooter's hate of Hispanic Americans just disappears. It just dissipates. There is no Hispanic American. We're just people. That's one of the great things about science. It's how it frees you of your bigotry. Now, when I say we're responsible for him, we're responsible for him in the same way my grandfather was responsible for me. And some of the things that my grandfather taught me were were invaluable in life. And they were true and accurate. And then other things were horrible and completely inaccurate. We're going to talk about that more in season three, but I just wanted to touch on it. We're responsible for the people around us. We're responsible and you need to take responsibility for what you say and what you do and how that affects other people. If, if you say something to somebody that inspires them to go out and shoot somebody, you need to be responsible for that. You need to worry about what you say, in other words. And as far as I can tell, with all the information out there, the absolute best thing you can do is to make sure that what you say is as accurate to reality as is humanly possible and is grounded in science as is humanly possible. This is what it means to have a scientific worldview, that you're not just going to say something because you believe it or because you want it to be true or because you'd like it to be true or because your mom told you. You're going to say things to people that are verifiably true through the scientific method. The more closely you adhere to something like that, the less you, the less closely you're going to adhere to things like religious fundamentalism or race theory, right? Or, you know, the race replacement conspiracy theory that this El Paso shooter clearly believed in. Now, it, it's a it's a pretty long episode, so I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you so much for listening. Don't worry, we're going to get into this a lot more in future episodes, this type of thinking, this type of critical thought, how to break down things and understand them for what they are, whether they're valid or invalid. Thank you for listening. This has been Ear Seduction. Ah!